Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Will you turn there with me this morning? Hebrews chapter 7. And if you noticed in our passage in Genesis that we read earlier, today's the day we're going to do more than just hear the name Melchizedek. In chapter 7, God finally uh, gives us a few more details. Um, Back in chapter 5, All we got was a statement that Jesus was called of God to be a high priest after the order or in the line of Melchizedek. No further explanation was given there. Instead, we were given the third of five warnings uh, because the original audience needed to be encouraged to leave any laziness or sluggishness they might have had toward God's word and diligently desire and apply its truth. But finally here in chapter 7, God explains what he means when he exalts Jesus Christ as our superior savior and high priest who is in the line of or after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's only mentioned three times in all of scripture. You already got one of them in Genesis. You get it here in Hebrews. There's one little verse in Psalm 110.4 that we'll reference later on. Um, And Hebrews 7 is probably the largest section of scripture that gives us information about this guy with a very strange name. Strange name, isn't it? About, uh, I don't know if it's on the top 100 of any baby names lists. Never seen Melchizedek there. Uh, But God's point in this passage, like it has been in Hebrews so far, is that our superior Savior Jesus Christ is better. He's better. He's superior. He's worthy of our full faith. He's worthy of our complete devotion and our exclusive love. Let's read. Let's read chapter 7. Stay with me because I'm going to go. All right? It's 28 verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth of priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, They have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it was witnessed that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, 
What further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. That's a mouthful. Let's pray. Father, as we look into this chapter that you've given us, a whole chapter where you are showing us um, the role of Jesus Christ, the position, his office as our full, final, exclusive high priest, I pray that we would see the blessing that is ours from you, this great gift of grace that uh, we have one mediator between us and you, and it is Jesus Christ. God, teach us in your word this morning, help us to respond to it, however your Holy Spirit moves us, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We are introduced to the character of the priest, specifically the priest Melchizedek, uh, in verses 1 through 4, and we have his roles, first of all. In verse 1, let me begin by communicating a role that's not in, in verse 1, but that's uh, implicit or it's implied throughout this passage and, and still very important. In fact, probably foundational to our understanding of this whole chapter. Melchizedek, well, we the guy we read about in Genesis, he, he is an Old Testament type of Jesus Christ. And we find these types... Uh, throughout the Old Testament. They are Old Testament pictures of a, a New Testament reality. Think of things like the blood uh, on the doorpost in Egypt uh, during the Passover or the blood that was sprinkled on the altar. Old Testament types, Old Testament pictures of the New Testament reality, the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin. Or think of things like the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness on the pole when that plague of snakes uh, was, was decimating the Hebrew people, and if they would just look to it, 
in faith, they would be saved, all types. And uh, Melchizedek, he is an Old Testament type of Jesus Christ. So again, very foundational for why God spends a whole chapter uh, discussing him here in Hebrews chapter 7, a, a chapter that continues to conclude that our superior Savior, Jesus Christ, is better. That's the message here. Let's look at verse 1. Finally, finally we got a description of this guy who so far has only been mentioned by name. And it says that he was the king of Salem and a priest, king and a priest, priest of the Most High God. So Melchizedek was a priest and he was a king. It says king of Salem. That's an ancient word for Jerusalem before uh, the Hebrews took possession of it. And Melchizedek was also a priest, it says in verse 1. So long before God ever chose Aaron and uh, the tribe of Levi to be his priest in the Old Testament, Melchizedek represented those who loved and worshiped God. He represented them to God, and he also communicated God's word and God's will to God's people. Those were Melchizedek's two roles. He was a priest, and he was a king. Now, Jesus is also our king and our priest. He's prophet, priest, and king. Those last two offices are the focus of this section of Hebrews. And in both of these instances, whether it's regarding Melchizedek or Jesus, this is noteworthy because this is not how things worked under the law in the Old Testament. Uh, instead, there was a clear commandment in the law from God against this. There was to be a separation of these two roles of king and priest. Um, the priests from the tribe of Levi, they were not to be kings. And vice versa. Uh, in fact, King Uzziah, in the Old Testament, one time he decided to go into the temple by himself and offer sacrifices on his own, and God struck him with leprosy for his brazen disobedience. So Melchizedek holding these two offices is a picture of Jesus Christ who later would completely combine what was intended to be separate among men and Jesus Christ could because he's our superior Savior. Now let's look at his references in verses 2 through 4. The description of Melchizedek continues. In any leader, we like to know their references. What are they like? What have they done? What can they do? Or, or what are they planning to do? And verse 2 says about Melchizedek that he first being by interpretation is the king of righteousness. Now that just means what his name means. I don't even know if Melchizedek was really his name. It might have been a title because Melch in Hebrew is king and Zadik or Sadik, and that's actually how we say it. We've, I've been saying Melchizedek all the time. It's actually pronounced Melchizedek, uh, but Sadik is a Hebrew word for righteousness. So it's just telling us what his name means, king of righteousness. Uh, it means to be blameless, innocent, pure. Pious. If you've ever interacted with um, that sect of Jews, the, the Hasidic sect, Hasidic, Orthodox Jews, that's where they get their name from, Sadiq, righteousness. They are saying um, that we are righteous, we are innocent, we are pure and pious. Well, the end of verse 2 also tells us that Melchizedek had a role as king of Salem. And this is uh, much more than just a political or geographic. Where was he king of? Well, he was king of old Jerusalem, of Salem. Uh, no, he's literally the king of peace. Uh, the Hebrew word shalom comes from the root of it is Salem. It's saying he's the king of righteousness and he is the king of peace. And so as these descriptions unfold, hopefully you can identify how Melchizedek was that type, was that Old Testament picture of the New Testament reality of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ our righteousness? Amen. 
That's why we can have a relationship with God. We, we have his imputed righteousness. When you trust Jesus as Savior, Christ's perfect record is given to you. He took yours on the cross. Is Jesus Christ our peace? Well, amen. He's our peace with God and with each other. And not only do righteousness and peace meet in Jesus Christ, that's one of my favorite verses. Psalm 8510 is a prophetic messianic psalm that talks about Jesus Christ. It's really beautiful, uh, poetic even. It says, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. It's talking about when Jesus came and, and when he was incarnate, what we celebrated at Christmas when God became man. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Not only have they met in Jesus Christ, but he actually gives. He gives righteousness and peace to all those who will receive him as their savior by faith. Well, Melchizedek, he is described here as being now in verse 3. This is where it gets a little weird. Without father, without mother, without any mention of children or descendants. Without a birth date, didn't have that in Genesis where we read earlier. Without a death date, didn't have that. And verse 3 says, so in that regard, he is like, I emphasize that word, all right? It's an important word. <laughs> he is like unto the Son of God. I don't think we should read more into this than what God clearly states here. There are some people that believe that Melchizedek was what we call a Christophany. There are instances in the Old Testament where we have theophanies and Christophanies. They, they are uh, manifestations of God or Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Often you'll see things like the angel of the Lord. That doesn't mean it's always a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You can kind of usually tell um, what do the people do. Do they bow down and worship that angel of the Lord? If the angel of the Lord says, no, get back up, you ought not be doing that probably just an angel. If the angel of the Lord accepts that worship, very possibly a Christophany, uh, very possible. Jesus did not begin December 25th in Bethlehem, amen? He's the ancient of days. He's been existent forever, just as God the Father. Um, so let's not read too much into this. I don't believe God is telling us that Melchizedek was one, because what does it say there? Uh, in verse 3, he is like, like unto the Son of God, meaning a type. He's a type. He's an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. But the reason for verse 3 and the, and the facts that are given here, they're very important in what's going to be communicated in the verses that follow. Be because we have such a limited record of this guy, Melchizedek, in general, and because we have no record of his death in particular, it doesn't mean he didn't die if he was a human being. Yeah, he did. But it does mean that his priesthood did not end when he did, because we have no record of his death. And one more reference at the beginning of verse 4 regarding Melchizedek. What does it say? Consider how great, great this man was. Melchizedek was great. We're told to consider. That's what we're doing here this morning in chapter 7. We're going to consider how great this king and priest was. And the evidence that's given for his greatness is that Abraham, the great patriarch of our faith, he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Another evidence is that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And now in verses 5 to 25, big section here of this passage, 
uh, we, God gives us a contrast between the priesthood, between the Melchizedekian priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood we're most familiar with when we study the Old Testament. We got to jump around a little bit here in verses 5 through 25. There's some big differences in this contrast. Verse 5 tells us that all of those who, who for generations have been priests from the Israelite tribe of Levi, they received tithes, they received offerings, but they received them from their brothers. Those other descendants of other Israelite tribes, whether it's Issachar or Manasseh or Ephraim or Judah or Simeon, those were who paid tithes to the tribe of Levi. And the contrast in the priesthood of Melchizedek is in verse 6. Who did Melchizedek receive tithes from? Only from Abraham himself. And then verse 7 gives us what should be our conclusion from this historical fact. Well, the less Abraham is blessed by the greater Melchizedek. And the reality that Abraham gave an offering to Melchizedek and that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, these facts are evidence that Melchizedek was greater than the great patriarch Abraham and thereby also greater than any of Abraham's sons, grandsons, including Levi and the priesthood of Levi. Verse 8. Verse 8 describes the tribe of Levi who received tithes from their brothers as well as the brothers who gave the tithes. What was that priesthood like? They were men. And what happens to men? They die. They die. It describes them as men who die. And this contrast is going to be developed just a, a little bit more as we read on. But, but verses 9 and 10 are telling us that in a very real way, Levi and his Old Testament priestly descendants, they actually gave tithes to Melchizedek because Abraham did. And Abraham was their great-grandfather. Who's a grandfather? Um, that's where we get that little section there in verse 9, as I may so say. That's what he's saying. I could even go this far. Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes because Abraham did. In Abraham, he was yet in the loins. He hadn't been born yet. Genealogically, he would, he would be coming. But when Abraham did, when great granddad did, you could say, well, Levi did as well. Verses 11 to 17, there's a couple of contrasts made here. First of all, in verses 11 and 12, the Levitical priesthood, it was temporary and it was imperfect. How do we know that? Well, another priesthood would emerge. And that promise is given right smack in the middle of the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. It's given back in Psalm 110, 4. That's quoted twice here in, in verse 17 and again in verse 21. Uh, if you have a cross-reference Bible, it might have that note to the side. This is what God's referencing here in Psalm 110.4. God says through David, the Lord has sworn, given an oath, and he will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who is he talking about there? He's talking about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. God promises in Psalm 110.4, or he gives an oath here, that the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, he would be a priest in the line of, or after the order of, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Not Aaron's line, not the uh, Levitical priesthood. No, there's going to be a change. And that's the focus of verse 12. Because a change in priesthood would also necessitate or indicate that there's going to be a change in the law that the priesthood oversaw. I'm so glad there was a change in that law. I'm so glad that we can come and worship like this and don't have to like we read about in the Old Testament. 
There's going to be a change in that law. We are the recipients. We get to experience that. Here's another difference. The Old Testament priests, they were always, they were only out of the tribe of Levi. Well, what tribe was Jesus from? Judah. Judah. And that's the message of verses 13 to 17. God tells us in verse 16 that that this new and final high priest, Jesus Christ, in the line of the priesthood of Melchizedek, he, he was not a priest after the law, it says in verse 16, after the law of a carnal commandment, or uh, he was not after just human, uh, mortal, ancestry, not the regulation of that, but, but why? Why was Jesus our high priest? Because of the power of an endless life, because he lives forever, because he rose from the dead. If we jump down to verses 20 and 21, back in Psalm 110, 4, God gave us a promise. He gave us an oath. That's been highlighted a couple times here. Uh, the Messiah being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Old Testament Levitical, Levitical priests, they were not installed uh, with any oath from God. But verses 20 and 21 tell us that Jesus was. That's just one more evidence of his superior priestly role for us. And then verses 23 and 24, they give us the final contrasts, the final differences. The Levitical priesthood had many, many priests. Generations full of them. Some of them were good Some of them were bad. They had many priests, ultimately, because eventually those priests would die. But the priesthood of Melchizedek, it continues forever because Jesus Christ rose from the grave and because he lives forever. The Old Testament Levitical priesthood in this section of Hebrews 7, it is presented as imperfect. It's inferior because of the many priests who were mortal. The Melchizedek priesthood of Jesus Christ, it's superior. It's perfect because he, he is the high priest and he's the high priest forever because he lives forever. What's being described here in verses 11 and 27 is really a, a disannulling, a setting aside of the Old Testament Levitical priesthood by Jesus Christ. This is so important because the original audience that this was written to, who probably was composed of mostly ethnically Jewish people who had trusted in Christ as Savior, we've already mentioned how they were facing persecution, the temptation to sin, just like us often. And so the temptation was there for them to leave, to leave Christianity, go, go back to Judaism. And to them, God's pleading again, like he has for six chapters now, continue in the faith that you have come to. God's saying, don't go back. Do not go back to that inferior and imperfect way of doing religion. That priesthood was designed to to point you to the superior and the perfect priesthood of Jesus Christ for you. In fact, verse 18 says that there's truly, verily, a disannulling of that priesthood, saying it's no longer in effect. I don't know what they're doing there. They're just going through motions. It's not doing anything. Why? Because it's weak. It's unprofitable. Verse 19, God says that the law made nothing perfect. It made nothing perfect. Well, it was never designed to. It was never designed to save. It was only designed to show us our need for salvation by God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Hey, we have something better. That's God's message to us here. A bringing in of a better hope, as it says in verse 19. Who's our better hope? Jesus Christ, our superior high priest. Church, that's who it is. Um, listen, I doubt 
there is a single person here today who will go back to Judaism. Because I don't know if any of you have a Judaism to go back to, right? <laughs> Not a threat. No. Look, the warning, the warning we have here applies to us as well. Don't go back to religion when you have relationship. Why would you make that trade? No, don't go back to attempting to earn your salvation by what you do or what you don't do. No, trust only in what Jesus Christ, your superior Savior, your superior high priest, trust in what he did for you. And if persecution or temptation to sin comes your way, don't retreat. No, continue. Continue in the faith that you have come to. Continue in Christ. Verse 22, it promises that we, Jesus Christ, we have him. And he is a surety of a better testament. So much better in this section. That's the message of Hebrews. Jesus is better. I just love that word surety. It's incredible because not only is Jesus Christ our sole mediator between us and between God as our superior high priest, but he's also our sole guarantor, our surety. That's what that means. No Old Testament high priest could say that. They couldn't be that. Really what God is telling us here is that Jesus is our high priest who makes the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but also that he's our surety. He actually is. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins that guarantees our salvation. And the message is that he's the culmination of the priesthood. You don't need another priesthood. We talked earlier about that a few weeks ago. As a Baptist, one of the Baptist distinctives is the priesthood of the believers. You're a priest. You're a priest. You're a priest. You don't need me. No, I like what I do. Please keep me. <laughs> but you don't need me to get to God. You can pray. You can understand God's word. I praise God for that. That's what Jesus bought us. Because he is our full and final high priest. We don't have to go into confession in a little booth and tell a priest, please make me right with God. I'm right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. I have the blood of Christ. That's the power of it. In Christ, we have a complete salvation, verses 25 to 28. In our study of Hebrews thus far, I've already referenced verse 25 a couple of times because it's a verse I like. What a wonderful verse. Let me read it. Hebrews 7, 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Such an incredible verse. I don't know if you highlight verses, bookmark, hang them around your home, put them on your phone, stick them in your car. This is a good one to do it with. So feel free. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. Are you saved to the uttermost this morning? I mean, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you can look back to a point in time in your life when you confessed your sin to him, and when you asked him to save you from your sins by trusting in what he did on that cross and in that empty tomb for you, Christian, you are saved to the uttermost. And highlighting what we talked about last week, you can't lose that. He did it. You're saved to the uttermost. That's a complete, that's a complete salvation. Your help is not required. Your assistance is not needed. Jesus paid it all. Amen. By grace alone, through faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone, for God's glory alone, we are saved to the uttermost, a complete salvation. Verse 26 tells us that we are completely saved by Jesus Christ, our only high priest, who became us. That's King James for that's exactly what we needed. Who became us. And what is he like? He's holy. And he's harmless. We sang about that this morning. Holy, holy, holy. He's the ancient of days. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. And where is he right now? 
He's higher than the heavens. He's at the right hand of God, and we await his return for us. No Old Testament high priest could be described like verse 26 just described our high priest. Jesus can. He's a culmination of it, of the priesthood. And in Christ, we have a complete sacrifice. I referenced that just a little bit ago, but how, how dreary must have been life in the Old Testament. How dreary must have been worship with all of its sacrifices. I mean, a continual, continual, bloody, violent, daily reminder of our sin and its effects. Well, verses 27 and 28, they, they remind us that Jesus, Jesus is our complete sacrifice. Look at verse 27. He needeth not daily. Jesus does not need to daily, as those high priests did, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins. Why not? Because Jesus had none. And then to offer up sacrifice for the people's sin. No, he doesn't need to do that daily. Why? Because he did it once. He did it once when he offered up himself. We have available to us a complete salvation where we're saved to the uttermost and we have a complete sacrifice. That's what verses 27 and 28 are talking about. A sacrifice that guarantees our complete salvation. The guarantee and the guarantor are one. It's Jesus Christ who offered himself, himself for our sins in our place. What a contrast to what verse 28 describes. The Old Testament Levitical priesthood, human high priest which have infirmity, they have weakness. No, we, in Christ, we have the oath of God. That's who he is, our, our superior savior, our superior high priest, the son of God. He's our complete salvation. And he's our complete sacrifice forever. That's who we have. Do, do you? Do you have him? I mean, can you look back to a moment in your life when you bowed in prayer before God and you asked Jesus to be your savior? I have to ask you that. I do. It was a blessing this week. It was kind of weird, but also a blessing. I was sitting at home, and I got a message from a coworker. I haven't seen him since 2011. It was when we both were at Delton. And he said, hey, I heard you were a pastor now. I said, yep. And he messaged me back on Instagram Messenger. He said, I wonder if you can help me. I'm lost, LOL. And I was like, does that mean you're lost, or is this like a joke on a pastor type of thing? And he just poured out his heart to me, and um, I gave him the gospel. He said, well, I go to church, so I've been baptized. And I asked him where. It was a Southern Baptist church in Fayetteville. It was where he had gone when he was a teenager and in college. And uh, I said, well, I didn't ask you if you were baptized. I didn't ask you if you went to church or confessed. I said, do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Has there been a moment in time when you went, man, I'm a sinner, and I, I need Jesus to save me from my sins? And he said, I don't think I've ever realized I was a sinner. I said, well, I ain't trying to be offensive. I'm a straight shooter. But according to what God's word says, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. That's like step one. What do you need a Savior for if you haven't? ever realized you're a sinner in need of a savior got to lead a guy to the lord through instagram messenger praise the lord but it's really weird for me <laughs> it was a first praise the lord but that's my point i mean grew up in a southern bed he said how come nobody ever told me this i said i don't know maybe that's why god had our paths crossed in 2011 and why you came to me 10 years later but he's telling you now he's chasing you 
don't let this night go without you trusting in Jesus as Savior. Christian, this was written, though, for you. He's talking to Christians here. You who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, is there anything coming your way like it was for these Christians that was tempting you, that, that someone or something is better than him? Or can you, can you sing like the praise team did? There's nothing better than you. Nothing. Is it temptation to leave faith alone and resort to your own works as a path of salvation? Is, is that something you're facing? Look, it's a frequent experience in the Christian life. But church, my works and your works are an inferior and completely inadequate Savior. Inadequate sacrifice. Don't go there. Go to the cross. Go to the cross of Jesus. Go to your superior high priest for help. And the message of Hebrews is simply this. We have a superior Savior. Jesus is better. Is there something in your life today that, that you've thought for a while, well, maybe that's better. Better than loving Christ or living for Christ. Better than the intimacy of relationship that comes from our obeying his word and following his will. Maybe Satan told you it was better. But God's word has shown you this morning, no, nah, it's not the case. No way. And if, that, if that's true, won't you come to the cross this morning and confess that sin and receive his full and free graces? As Tommy comes, however the Holy Spirit's used the word of God to call you to respond today, I just ask that you would obey.